welcome everyone to another episode of Home Peeps. Today is so exciting because we have one of our favorite new episodes, which is our Fellows Case Files. Garf, I can't wait for today's episode. Yeah, me too. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, this series is all about highlighting fellows and programs from around the country, getting them to go through these high-yield cases and amazing presentations that they've done, and to learn about the teaching points together. Totally, Firth. And not only are we joined by amazing fellows in training, but we are so lucky to be joined by fellowship program directors. And by doing so, we hope to bring in um, you know, a diverse group of educators and cases for you to learn from, as well as hear about their amazing training programs. Yeah, absolutely can't wait. If you hear this episode and you're a fellow and you have a great case, definitely reach out to us. We're happy to have anybody on. But for now, let's get started. Uh, so to launch things off, we are heading to the Pacific Northwest, our first time across coast, and we're welcoming two guests from the University of Washington. Thanks, Murph. Yeah, excited to get some West Coast cases and uh, teaching points for today. And first, I have the honor of introducing Dr. Robin Stiller, who is currently a third-year pulmonary and critical care fellow at the University of Washington. Robin completed internal medicine residency training at the University of Washington, and her clinical and research interests include procedural education as well as curriculum development, uh, two things that Firf and I are obviously very interested in. Robin, we're so excited for you to join us today and go through a really great case. But before that, I have to admit, I'm a Cowboys fan. So I see you grew up in Pittsburgh, but living in Washington now. So want to know if you're a Steelers or a Seahawks fan. Thanks so much for having us. I have to say, I think uh, sticking with the Steelers, we definitely have some terrible towels around our house. So back from my high school days, we used to stand on the uh, you know, cafeteria tables on Fridays before games. It was uh, a big thing I grew up with. So I would say Steelers fan for sure. Awesome. Next, we have Dr. Bashak Charu. Bashak is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine and is the program director for the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship. She completed her fellowship at UW, as well as completing the Teaching Scholars Program there. Bashak has received numerous teaching and mentoring awards throughout her career, and she has leadership roles with the ATS, CHEST, and APCCMPD. And Bashak, I'll say, every time I join a committee or see something, inevitably your name is already on there. <laughs> I don't know how you have the time for it all, but it's amazing to have you on the show with us today. Thanks so much, Dave and uh, Christina. We're really delighted to be here and looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, us too. And our quick disclaimer, just as a reminder, this is not for specific medical advice. Our views are our own and not reflecting our employers. And the case has some slightly changed details to protect our patient privacy and is HIPAA compliant. So let's uh, dive in. Robin, it sounds like you had a really great case that you encountered on the ICU. So why don't you tell us about how the patient initially presented? Sure thing. So today we are going to be caring for a 56-year-old woman. She has a history of intermittent heavy alcohol use and depression, and she was found down at home by her partner. Unknown downtime, not too many details um, were known at the time, so the medics were called. They found her to be unresponsive in the supine position. No obvious signs of trauma, but there was appreciable vomitus on her face. And so in her immediate management, she received a liter of crystalloids in the field. She was intubated and then brought into the emergency department for further management. And then a quick survey of the scene just prior to bringing her in identified a bag of pill bottles. So they were brought into the hospital with her. So just a quick snippet there. The first introduction, Christina, what are your initial thoughts? And if you started to generate a problem representation? Sure. Thanks, Robin. And I know that was some brief information, but I think you highlighted some important specifics that we can at least build on. So I would say that we have an unresponsive middle-aged woman with known 
alcohol use and depression found down inside her home by her partner. A few of my initial thoughts, you know, are potentially intentional or unintentional ingestion leading to a toxidrome, um, keeping in mind that co-ingestion of substances is common. Um, I'd also consider other etiologies. Larger buckets would be more of a cardiac, um, you know, so thinking did uh, she have an MI and or arrhythmia, any type of neurological etiology, specifically seizure activity. You can think of endocrine etiologies as well, I would say either both hyper or hypoglycemia and any kind of trauma that may have resulted um, in her presentation. This is definitely a patient that we would want to obtain collateral information on, but I would really be interested in um, identifying any type of prescribed as well as over-the-counter medications or supplements that she may have been on, especially when considering intentional or unintentional ingestion as one of the leading differentials. And I think it's really important to know, you know, if medications, are they immediate release or sustained release, as we may see delayed clinical findings if we're suspecting a toxidrome. Uh, so Robin, um, going back to you, interested to know if you um, or the team got any collateral information from her boyfriend or pharmacy? Yeah, great question. So like I mentioned, unfortunately, no one was around in the day immediately preceding this event. So the details were a little bit murky, but we did learn from the patient's partner that um, that our patient had struggled with severe depression in the past and had actually attempted suicide before. Her medical history was also notable for PTSD, esophagitis, and asthma. And then finally, our colleagues in uh, pharmacy did amazing detective work about her medications. And we were able to find out that her Prescribed and most recently filled medications included amlodipine, baclofen, buspirone, and hydroxyzine. Yeah, that's really all helpful information. As I think we mentioned earlier, in these types of cases, you really have to think about ingestions, co-ingestions, given her prior alcohol use, and, and this bag of pill bottles. So thinking about all of that and having the pharmacy sort of dive into it is great. And really a heads up play, an important thing to bring in the bag of pills that you find. I think that this is something that we don't always do in the ICU, but EMS and other healthcare professionals are doing it really makes a huge difference for how we can care for them. Our ED colleagues and our ED critical care colleagues are often the first people to assess these people, almost always, and their physical exam can be really helpful for the diagnosis and, you know, they well documented and you talk to them what they see. I think we're going to talk about a different bunch of different things you can look for. But for me, I'm always looking for signs on the exam that can help me sort of narrow, say like, what did this patient take if they took something and, and how can it help me think about how to treat them? So one thing I always look for at first is just, you know, first vital signs is the temperature, especially if this is extremely hyperthermic, you know, in patients who have a very high fever, certainly you have to think about infectious inflammatory etiology stuff. We've always discussed more on this uh, show. But for ingestions, you know, there are five sort of big buckets of medications that can cause a hyperthermic presentation, uh, sympathomimetic, anticholinergic, serotonin syndrome, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, and malignant hypothermia. And so that can be like a really nice key just to sort of say, hey, these are uh, the syndromes that I'm looking for. How, that's just one variable, though. So there's certainly a bunch of other things to look at as well. Yeah, I totally agree, Ferv, and thank you for going over the five big buckets for us to remember. And I wanted to point out as well, why I think it's unlikely in this case, I did have a patient who presented with baclofen withdrawal. Um, so anytime someone's on um, baclofen, um, withdrawal can be on the differential as well. And the patient presented 
a slightly different, but had confusion, hypothermia, clonus, and tremors. Um, so you can have overlapping clinical manifestations with other toxidromes. And with that being said, Robin, I wanted to know if you can discuss how you would approach the physical exam in a patient with suspected toxidrome and, you know, any critical elements that you think we shouldn't miss and describe any pertinent negatives or positives that you think are relevant for listeners to be aware about. Yeah, absolutely. And just to reiterate your point, um, you know, the toxidromes really can have overlapping clinical manifestations, even in the setting of an isolated substance or drug ingestion. And then those layers of complexity are just additive when there are multiple ingestions. Um, so the picture can be really confusing and leaning on some key physical exam features off the bat while we're waiting for more diagnostics is a really good first step. So framing through the lens Thinking about sort of drug classes, just as you mentioned, Dave, sympathomimetics, I think of as a generally sort of ramping up type physical exam, elevated heart rate, temperature, blood pressure, respiratory rate, dilated pupils. But a really important observation is going to be the patient's skin. The uh, features I, I mentioned thus far can be similar in an anticholinergic ingestion, but diaphoresis and sweaty, wet skin is definitely going to clue us into a sym sympathomimetic toxidrome as opposed to that dry characteristic of an anticholinergic toxidrome. Pupil size is key as well. Specifically, pinpoint pupils are going to point us toward an opioid ingestion. Um, always important to keep in mind, though, that the patient may have received something in their pre-hospital course that could confound that picture. And then additionally, re reduced respiratory rate, another classic feature of opioid intoxication or a sedative ingestion. But again, with the caveat that if we've secured somebody's airway and have taken control of that with mechanical ventilation, that aspect can be, can be missed as well. Christina, you mentioned tone and reflexes, also super helpful. We mentioned serotonin syndrome versus neuroleptic malignant syndrome before, sort of differentiating features include a, a rigid classic lead pipe tone and hyporeflexia in NMS versus a stronger predominance of clonus and hyperreflexia in serotonin syndromes. And then finally, I'd be remiss not to circle back just to one additional point that was brought up. You know, we're thinking of this in the context of an acute ingestion, which is what we're presuming here, but always considering that maybe we've reached the withdrawal syndrome for somebody. Um, so timeline is key as best as we're able to understand, really vital for history taking. Robin, I think that's just a great point. And, you know, keeping your differential broad, even when we're focusing on ingestion, could have this been a while ago. And, and I love that you highlight all the physical exam findings. And I think an important thing with these toxidrome patients, it emphasizes how important it is to do like a clonus exam every once in a while. Like we don't do that a lot in our patients, but, you know, getting a good sense of normal so that when you see the abnormal is so helpful. The other day I saw a patient and his, um, his pupils were literally just like dinner plate size, like the biggest pupils I'd seen. It was a hospital transfer, so the whole story was very weird. But like, if you don't look every day in your ICU patients, then you kind of lose a sense of these uh, normal findings. So uh, what did we find in this case? Yeah, our patient was actually a little hypothermic on arrival, but she was strikingly hypotensive and bradycardic. She was saturating well when she first came to us, um, but was being delivered 100% FiO2 through her ventilator, so something we definitely needed to investigate further. And then it, coming back to some of those key features on physical exam I mentioned, she was noted to have pinpoint pupils. They were subtle but equally reactive. Her skin was warm and dry, and she had no abrasions or lesions. She had no clonus or tremors and was not actively receiving any sedation at that time. I mentioned her bradycardia already, and then she had some coarse breath sounds, mainly in the upper lung fields, and she was not responsive or interacting with us at all. And again, as I mentioned, not receiving any sedation at that time. So that was an important thing for us to identify. 
Thanks so much, Robin. And I really loved how you kind of went over the physical exam and how certain signs fit with the suspected toxidromes, as you mentioned. So given her temperature of 35.8, I'm less likely to think that she fits into one of the five kind of hyperthermic toxidrome scenarios that Firth mentioned earlier. And uh, Bashak, with the additional information that Robin provided, I wanted to ask what your initial approach to diagnostic evaluation would be uh, for our patient and um, any differential for ingestion that you would be considering given her notable bradycardia and profound hypotension. Sure, Christina. I think maybe what I might do is actually step back a little bit because I think in these cases, what we don't want to do is anchor on ingestion being the cause of um, whatever is going on with this patient. And I think if we step back and go back to actually your problem representation and that initial differential, there aren't a lot of things that give you profound bradycardia and profound hypotension simultaneously. So I think we could start there and think about the buckets that might give us that constellation. Um, so first, I think you mentioned this earlier, Christina, it could be a primary cardi- cardiac event. It could be that she has profound bradycardia and is just symptomatic from that bradycardia and has hypotension related to it. Certainly, she could have had um, an MI. There could be some metabolic things. Hyperkalemia is one thing that comes to mind that's associated with AV block and sinus arrest. So maybe some electrolyte disorders that we should be thinking about. We already mentioned endocrine disorders and um, profound hypothyroidism could certainly explain both bradycardia and hypotension. We haven't heard about this in the case, but spinal cord injury is another thing that I think about um, when you see those two vital signs coexisting. And then saving, um, what I think what we're all thinking about for last, um, you know, is this a toxidrome and could this be uh, related to an ingestion? There's a handful of medications that can give you concurrent bradycardia and hypotension. We've already heard that she's on amlodipine as a prescribed medication and calcium channel blockers as a class would be in that bucket. I would also include beta blockers, digoxin, which might have some characteristic ECG findings um, that we could look for, uh, and then clonidine. Those are the medications that I think about as causing concurrent bradycardia and hypotension. So in terms of workup, I think I would start out really broadly. We want to get some basic labs, learning a little bit more about her kidney and liver function. We'd want to get a CBC coags. Robin alluded to this. We'd like to get a blood gas to know how she's doing um, and whether she actually needs all of the oxygen that she's on. I think glucose is another really important one. Our paramedic colleagues and uh, our EM colleagues are really good at thinking about this, but both hypo and hyperglycemia might be important clues in this case. And with certain ingestions, they can actually help us distinguish them. Um, as an example, calcium channel blockers tend to lead to hyperglycemia, whereas uh, beta blockers, which inhibit glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis can give you hypoglycemia. Because there's a lot of unknowns, I I think we do want to get a blood alcohol level. I would get an aspirin and acetaminophen level. Again, maybe she's using over-the-counter medications that aren't accounted for. I think the electrocardiogram is going to be really important here, looking for all the things that we've brought up already. We want to know if there's cardiac ischemia. We said there might be some characteristic findings with digoxin that we could look for. And then we would want to check the intervals because often um, those can be abnormal in the setting of ingestion. And then I think to round things out, I'd get a chest radiograph. Uh, She was intubated in the field and a head CT because she was found down and we want to make sure she didn't have a neurologic event. I think it's worth um, just briefly pausing to talk about urine toxicology screens. I think that's something that we often send in this scenario. And I think we just need to be cautious when we're interpreting those tests. 
We know that there are a lot of false positives, first off, um, as well as false negatives, even when someone's had an ingestion. And I think fentanyl, oxycodone, those are examples of things that might not show up even though someone's ingested them. And then we know that if something shows up on a urine tox screen, it suggests that the individual had exposure to this agent, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's causing their intoxication at the moment. And I think we've probably all been in scenarios where we've been led astray by a urine tox screen. I think our EM colleagues are also sending these tests less and less because we recognize that it also leads to bias um, as we're managing our patients. So I don't know that a urine tox would necessarily be helpful here. So many great points there. I mean, I love keeping the differential broad. Obviously, we shouldn't hone in on something right away. And, you know, just a found down patient, so many things could be causing that. Um, and, you know, I think that point about the urine tox is also huge. And even just thinking broadly in diagnostics, you know, it is so hard to sometimes ignore a negative or a positive finding. And that, you know, you have to take it into context. We love definitives when medicine is so rarely definitive. So recognizing that that could be so misleading is a huge point. I appreciate it. Um, one thing that I always find challenging is it's just really hard for me to remember all the drugs, all the drug interactions to sort of splice together when there are different findings, like on ECG, when there are different interval findings. And so, you know, poison control centers I know are around and are amazing resources. Bishak, could you just talk about when you sort of get them involved in a case like this, if you have a suspicion at all? Early and often. Toxicologists are amazing. First off, they seem to be universally friendly and helpful. Uh, number one. And two, I think they're actually great to get involved, even when you're suspecting an ingestion, because I often find that they're helpful in prompting me, just like you said, Dave, to ask me questions about what I'm seeing on either physical exam or ECG. And I, I feel like they always get to my blind spots um, with this exam. And then not only are they helpful with the initial management, I find that our toxicologists are also, we we communicate with them often. You know, we have that initial phone call, they give us some initial recommendations, but then in the next hour or two, they'll say, call us back in an hour, let us know how the patient is doing. And then now we're going to walk you through the, the next few steps of their care. So um, I think it's never too early to call poison control. I definitely agree, Bashak. And I think the toxicologists, I think they probably have the best follow-up from um, from some of the consultants that we um, we have on our patients. And thank you for going over yeah, some great pearls so far. Specifically love the anchoring bias in a case like this. So Robin, I wanted to go to you though and just frame our case for those listening today. And can you tell us what happened next in her diagnostic evaluation? Yeah, you bet. So this is a, a middle-aged woman who we're caring for. She presented to our emergency department unresponsive and in shock, really broad differential. So lots to, to work up. But uh, with her came some pill bottles that were found nearby at home, raising our, con our concern for a life-threatening ingestion. Her initial lab work revealed an acute kidney injury. She had a creatinine of 1.38 from a baseline of one, a little bit hyponatremic to 134. And she had a metabolic acidosis on her chemistry with a bicarb of 17. Her blood counts revealed a mild anemia with a hemoglobin of 9. And on her blood gas that confirmed her acidemia, we appreciated a respiratory contributor as well. She had a pH of 7.18 and a CO2 of 49. And her initial serum lactate was 4 on, on that first check. Bishak raised a great point about the questionable utility of a urine drug screen. She did receive one when she first came in and that had a positive for benzodiazepines. But as I was alluding to before, she had been given midazolam in the field. So that was just an important uh, confounder to keep in mind. And then her blood alcohol level was 229 to start with negative acetaminophen and salicylate levels. She got a EKG 
right off the bat, and that revealed sinus bradycardia. She had a prolonged QTC interval of 540 milliseconds, but a normal QRS of 98 and PR interval of 162 milliseconds and had no ischemic changes. And her intervals remained stable on serial EKGs moving forward. And then moving on to imaging, she did have a CT of her head, and that was uh, without any acute intracranial pathology. And then she got a chest radiograph on arrival, and that confirmed appropriate placement of her endotracheal tube. But we noticed that she had a predominantly right-sided opacity, really in that upper lung field, extending somewhat into the middle lung field, and it was an alveolar filling pattern, and she had some elevation of her right hemidiaphragm. So... Right off the bat in the emergency department, she received three more liters of crystalloid fluid and then was initiated on increasing doses of vasopressors and then transported from the emergency department to our medical ICU for ongoing care. All great information. There's a lot to unpack there. And it's so hard in these situations where you never know what is the cause and what's the consequence, right? If a patient is coming in. So is this alveolar filling with maybe evidence of volume loss? Did you have a pneumonia that caused all this? Or is this just secondary to everything that happened? But certainly the thing that stands out to me is just, you know, she's in pretty good, severe shock, you know, saying that she has a little bit of lactate, she has an acidosis, she got fluids, but is not responding and is really on vasopressors was still not, you know, great response. And I remember we did, from our undifferentiated shock episode, we talked about the importance of bedside pocus, just getting a probe on there and seeing if you can figure anything out. So uh, did you or your team drop a probe, take a look at her heart and see what the function was like? Absolutely. We did a bedside point of care ultrasound and that showed us that she was volume replete on our gross evaluation, uh, looked to have an adequate squeeze. And then of course she had a formal TTE and that showed overall hyperdynamic function. She had an ejection fraction of 65 to 70% grade one diastolic dysfunction, but otherwise had a normal RV size and function as well. So that was really helpful in telling us as we're trying to parse through this differential. She interestingly, though, had some follow-up chest films, and that actually showed progression of the confluence of her alveolar filling pattern. The findings remained more densely consolidated on the right side, but evolved to include bilateral lung fields as well. And in lieu of her presentation and refractory instability, we were definitely in close communication with our colleagues at the Poison Control Center, talking through possible ingestions, and ultimately our suspicion was greatest for ingestion of the amlodipine her calcium channel blocker that we found at home with her. Awesome. Thanks, Robin. And we'll definitely post the images just to kind of see the interval progression of the um, alveolar opacities that you're describing so everyone can see that. And I know that calcium channel blocker toxicity is not something that we see every day, um, but given that they are such widely used medications in the adult population, definitely think it's important reviewing how ingestion can manifest. Uh, So uh, Bashak, I was wondering if you can review what listeners should be aware of with calcium channel blocker toxicity. Yeah, sure. I think first off, these are medications that bind L-type calcium channels, and they really affect three organs in the body. First, the cardiac myocytes, then vascular smooth muscle, and then finally pancreatic beta cells um, preventing the influx of calcium. So what is that gonna look like as we're evaluating this patient? So if we go back to those three organs in terms of the cardiac myocytes, it results in decreased contractility as well as decreased chronotropy. On the vascular side, we see vasodilation, including coronary vasodilation. Um, And then this interesting effects on the beta cells in the pancreas results in decreased insulin release. And as I was alluding to earlier, um, that can result in a hyperglycemia, which can help you differentiate from a beta blocker overdose. Many patients are on both a beta blocker and a calcium channel blocker. So um, if 
you're unsure what they've ingested, that might be one thing that helps. And then in terms of their pancreatic effects, they also disrupt fatty acid metabolism and they can lead to myocardial insulin resistance, which also just adds fuel to the fire. As a reminder, we have two classes of calcium channel blockers, the dihydropyridines like amlodipine and nifedipine, which is um, what we're concerned this patient had ingested. Um, and those drugs tend to cause more of the vasodilatory effects. So the hypotension tends um, to be a, a little bit more pronounced than the bradycardia. And in fact, they can often get a reflex tachycardia early on in their presentation. And then contrasting that with the non-dihydropyridine, so diltiazem, verapamil, those agents, um, they tend to affect the heart a little bit more and cause more profound bradycardia, where that's um, the predominant uh, thing that you're seeing on your exam. I think some other things to think about with these drugs is the formulation. So we know that immediate release drugs, um, usually you're going to get symptoms within six hours. I think some of the more challenging cases to manage are when there's extended release formulations that are used because not only can it take much longer before you see symptoms of the ingestion up to 16 hours, but the drug is going to stick around in their system and, and cause trouble for a lot longer. And then I think a few other things that make um, calcium channel blocker overdose management really tricky. Um, these are agents that are metabolized by the liver. So it's not like we can just simply dialyze this agent out of, out of the patient's bloodstream um, and quickly clear them. And these drugs are also very highly lipophilic and have a very large volume of distribution. So they're going to be sticking around for a long time. Thanks for reviewing that. You know, so to come back and apply these to our patient, you know, we have a middle-aged woman, uh, past suicide attempts and polysubstance abuse at, at times, who was found unresponsive and based on you know, clinical evaluation and history and uh, collateral, there's suspicion for a calcium channel blocker uh, overdose. She's in the MICU. She has profound shock. And we have some concern for progressive multi-organ failure just in the way her chest x-ray is progressing, her kidney injury that we saw. So management and acute management quickly, it becomes really important. This is where I think uh, poison control and toxidromes are so interesting because you just have to have this experience. It's like to remember some random thing. I think the first time I saw uh, a Depakote overdose, someone was like, oh, we have to give carnitine right now. And I thought they were like the smartest person in the world because they remembered some random thing that's out there. So Robin, could you highlight for us and our listeners the management for calcium channel blocker toxicity? Sure thing. So a couple basic items we've already touched on right away important. We've secured her airway and she has adequate vascular access and has been resuscitated with crystalloid fluid. And we are attempting further vasoactive support with multiple pressors. Nonetheless, though, our patient continued to deteriorate, so we had to implement a couple additional strategies as well, again, with help from and while in communication with our colleagues at Poison Control. So we initiated an IV calcium chloride infusion for its inotropic effects. As we've already touched on, calcium channel blockers, of course, block entry of calcium into, into the cells, and that will result in vasodilation, reduced cardiac contractility, slowed AV nodal conduction, and so the IV calcium aims to overcome this. And then high-dose insulin paired with dextrose to maintain euglycemia as a mainstay in calcium channel blocker ingestions as well. In particular, if patients have evidence of myocardial dysfunction, but this is going to be reached for even if patients demonstrate adequate cardiac function. And like Vishak mentioned, calcium channel blockers disrupt fatty acid metabolism and create this relative insulin resistance at the myocardium um, and, of course, disrupt insulin release from the beta cells in the pancreas. So infusion rates are typically started at 0.5 units per kg per hour, and then are going to be up-titrated from there. 
Um, and we think that the insulin is going to provide a, a direct positive inotropic effect and then facilitate car uh, carbohydrate uptake and energy utilization at the myocardium as well. And then in this patient in particular, uh, we also initiated a bicarbonate infusion just given her progressive acidemia and ran into a couple of interesting management barriers with her. Her calcium inf infusion ultimately led to pretty significant hypercalcemia. And despite high concentration dextrose being delivered to her with that insulin, she remained hypoglycemic. So we really had to think critically with our colleagues at Poison Control, weighing the risks and the benefits. And ultimately, we had to stop those two infusions. But they are considered the initial first-line management in calcium channel blocker overdose. Thanks, Rob. You know, it's been a little while since I had to use a glucagon infusion for, for treatment of an ingestion. Uh, thank you for going over the treatment and the rationale for why they're used. I know, and I've read sometimes activated charcoal for GI decontamination can be used. This is early within an hour or so of ingestion of calcium channel blocker. And, you know, I think probably avoided in this patient, just given um, a delayed uh, presentation of onset. And, you know, obviously you're getting her in the in the ICU with hemodynamic instability, probably defer on that. But Bashak, I didn't want to ask you, since you mentioned that calcium channel blockers were lipophilic, I was wondering if IV lipid emulsion therapies would be useful in this case. I know that sometimes they can be used in certain ingestions. Absolutely, Christina. So um, lipid emulsion therapy is essentially, we're all familiar with it. It's the fats that are used in, in TPN. So we've all seen it. Um, and this therapy is not specific to calcium channel blocker overdose. Um, just like you alluded to, I think they have this uh, treatment has a role for ingestion of any highly lipophilic drug. And the thought is that this agent forms a lipid sink. So it essentially traps the drug, it envelops it and traps it and then shuttles it to whatever organ it's going to go to to get met metabolized, um, making the drug ineffective. And then in addition, the fatty acids that, that are included in the lipid emulsion provide the myocardium with a ready en energy source to improve cardiac function, where again, cardiac function was one thing that was a concern in this case. So it directly can stimulate those L-type calcium channels that we talked about. Thanks for bringing that up, Bashak. Um, that was what we reached for next as we we're continuing to run into concerns about her hemodynamics. So we did trial lipid emulsion therapy in her course, but unfortunately, she just continued to develop progressive respiratory failure remained in refractory shock. And then next on our, our list was consideration of venoarterial extracorporeal life support. That came up next in our management discussion. So Dave, I understand this is one of your favorite topics and wondering if you can briefly outline for us if you think that this therapy would be beneficial and how you might approach it um, in a clinical case like this. Yeah, definitely. I, I love talking about intralipids too. Thank you guys for going over that. And if you never can't find intralipids, make sure you ask uh, anesthesia because they usually have them in the OR for a bunch of toxicities that they can have there with um, topical numbing medicines and things like that. But ECMO, even more fun for to talk about. You know, I think ECMO, just like any, a lot of tools in critical care, uh, it doesn't solve any driving pathophysiologic problem. It's just a means of support, just like the ventilator. In fact, like we wish we didn't ever have to use it because there are all sorts of harms and complications that we have to run into. But if somebody is really unable to support uh, their cardiac function with VA ECMO or the pulmonary function, thinking more VV ECMO or both, you could do a combined form of VAV ECMO, uh, that with medications and all the critical care management we're doing, then it's definitely something that we have at our disposal. And so you're basically just doing the function of the heart, the lungs, or the heart and lungs outside the body uh, while you're giving the patient time to recover. And I think toxicities like this, especially calcium channel blocker toxicities, 
can be a really great candidate for this because it should be a time limited event, right? Like we should go on via ECMO, then whatever the calcium channel blocker or ingestion was, it should wear off. We don't know how long that's going to be because we don't know if it's extended release or not. We don't know about the lipophilic distribution in the body. But once it goes off, hopefully they should have an easily reversible and their cardiac function and pulmonary function should return to normal and they can come off the circuit. Um, so I definitely think it's worth considering. And in fact, I've seen people transferred to ECMO capable centers with really high dose, long acting calcium channel blocker overdoses just because nobody knew what trajectory they were going to go in. And the only thing I'll mention in this case is that when you have a VA, VA does some oxygenation, but it's really not meant for sick lungs. You know, you can't uh, oxygenate as enough of the blood that's going through. So if a patient had infiltrates that were getting worse and really high vent requirements, I would just take note of that before I put them on and at least have a plan for if they decompensate so they could be on the appropriate uh, uh, support that they needed. So I think it would be very reasonable to think about that uh, in this case. So Robin, what ended up happening? Sounds like a very sick patient. You guys were thinking about and doing all the right things. Yeah, very sick patient trying to consider all of our options. She did unfortunately continue to deteriorate despite all of our um, medical efforts and even trying to further optimize her ECLS, ECLS circuit, just like you said, trying to both support her heart and her lungs. Her instability remained too profound to tolerate that or to tolerate uh, renal replacement therapy for her volume overload or sustained acidemia. Uh, she developed a worsening coagulopathy over her course as well, and then ultimately her loved ones elected to transition her to comfort measures only. But an incredible case for learning and working through all of the sophisticated elements of calcium channel blocker management um, and sort of other tools in our toolkit that we can be thinking about in these cases. Yeah, it's always so tough when especially a young patient doesn't do well like this, but you know, important that we can at least learn and, and hopefully know to help the next person who comes in with the same situation. I think this was such a, a great case. And I think the first time that Dave and I have introduced a toxidrome and thinking through that pathway, and we couldn't have been more excited to have you um, on Robin, as well as um, Bashak to share this. I think one of the most exciting things about this fellow's case series is just getting to learn, hear from other amazing educators um, about a case and learning some practical management strategies and, and things to think about, but also getting to learn about your training programs. You know, I, I know that um, recruitment season is fast approaching for fellowships um, in just, you know, kind of a, a few weeks. So um, we also want to hear what you love about your fellowship. And Robin, I'll start with you. I wanted to know if you can highlight some things about the UW Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship. Oh, I certainly can. <laughs> Our fellowship program is such a special and unique family. I think the strength of the community here is far and away the highlight. And having a fearless leader and advocate like Bashak is just unparalleled. Beyond that, of course, we receive incredible foundational skills and learning, teaching, clinical care, um, and have the privilege of caring for patients not only here in Seattle, but also patient populations from the surrounding areas that come into our local hospitals. It's a really wonderful community to be a part of. I feel privileged every day. That's so awesome. And I think Dave and I need to make a trip out to that, the Pacific Northwest and hopefully get to meet y'all in person soon. Bashak, what about you? Can you share something? I'm, I'm sure you have so many things, um, you know, such a proud fellowship director, uh, but wanted to see if you could share a couple of things today for those listening. Absolutely. First off, I will say you all are welcome in Seattle anytime. We would love to have you here. We should do a live episode from Seattle. Well, I'm obviously biased because I think we have an amazing fellowship program, um, but I'm, I'm actually just going to echo exactly what Robin said. I think um, 
you know, we have uh, amazing fellows and faculty throughout the realms of kind of clinical teaching, research. Um, but for me, what makes our program so amazing is very much the people. And I think we've all recognized over the last few years, especially how important community is. Um, and we have a really hard job and you wanna be surrounded by people that you respect and admire and trust. And I feel like that's our community. Um, our fellows are not just amazing, doctors and educators and researchers. They're just incredible humans. Um, and I would say the same about our faculty. So it, it makes it a joy to come to work every day. It doesn't snapping in support of something doesn't transmit well on a podcast, but snapping in support for everything that you said. And be careful what you promise. We may be on our way out to Seattle soon <laughs> to visit. So to wrap up, we like to wait, take away one teaching point each so that everybody has some high yield points. Uh, I'm going to just take one for something Robin said. Like I said, I think toxidromes are tough because things that don't naturally come to mind, you have to remember. So for this, you know, calcium channel blocker, overdose, even mild and moderate even, think about an insulin infusion and balancing that with dextrose, you know, to stabilize the uh, at the myocardium, but also because of the pancreatic cell dysfunction that they can cause. Uh, Monty, what are you taking? Yeah, I really loved, um, Robin, how you went over the physical exam when you suspect a toxidrome. So in addition to vitals, I think things that I will learn to always um, evaluate, um, again, specifically, you mentioned skin, pupils, respiratory rate, as well as reflexes. And then I think a second point I want to just throw into is just um, really appreciated Bashak's point on um, just preventing bias um, and anchoring um, in a case like this when you, when you have a specific history that you're concerned about, but keeping a broad differential um, when working up a patient such as ours today. Bashak, anything that you're going to take away? Yeah, I mean, so many great pearls. I think if folks take nothing else away, I think um, the utility of collaborating early and often with toxicologists through poison control, I, I think for me that it always comes down to that. They're incredibly helpful. So when you suspect an ingestion, get on the horn. Definitely. And Robin, to round us out? Yeah, I think this case just really highlights um, just how complex toxidromes can be, uh, how often their clinical manifestations overlap, and then highlighting the importance of keeping in mind we may be in the acute ingestion phase, we may be in the withdrawal phase, and doing our best to navigate through that timeline um, to hone in on the right diagnosis. Well, thank you so much, Robin and Bashar, for coming on the show. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Palm Peeps. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. The episode was produced, recorded, and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor, and the music was original music made by Eric Rogers.